This is a Vantage House production. Hey folks, it's been a while. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 1. I'm so happy to be back, and do we have a show for you. Today is February 2nd, and if it's Friday, you know what time it is. Welcome to The Dell. One thousand one hundred thirty-nine people were killed on October seventh in a Hamas-led attack on southern Israel. Two hundred forty hostages were taken. One hundred ten have been returned alive. Eleven bodies have been recovered. One hundred thirty-six still held captive. At least twenty-six thousand Palestinians have died. A large group of that being made up of women and children. It's also important to note that these are numbers at the time of recording. So. By the time this episode is released, more will have died. May their memories be a blessing. When the Delve team and I decided we were going to come back for season seven, we knew there was only one topic we had to really get started with. But that didn't mean that researching, writing, and recording this episode didn't fill us with sadness, dread, and despair. The truth is, this is tough. Our team at the Delve is diverse in many ways. We are multiracial. Uh, we span four continents. We're composed of different genders and sexualities, religions and ideologies. We, like many of you, have our own opinions on the current humanitarian crisis in Palestine and Israel, which is shaped by our upbringings, our communities, our politics, and more. We have decided not to make an episode that hinges on our opinions or tries to convince you that we are right one way or another. It isn't feasible. And to be honest, we don't have consensus on that even for ourselves. What we have is a team of researchers and writers who are passionate about geopolitics and human rights. Through their efforts, I'm offering a historical context setting that we felt was important in a humble attempt at thoughtful, compassionate dialogue. We hope you can walk away from this episode with a solid historical foundation and greater understanding of the human history that informs today's conflict. There is a common refrain on the left, this conflict didn't start on October 7th, it started in 1948. That's referring to the end of the British Mandate of Palestine that sparked the mass displacement of Palestinians during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Some 80% of Palestinians fled or were expelled and their land turned over to the new Jewish state created by the British and the UN. This is known as the Nakba, or catastrophe in Arabic. Between 1947 and 1949, 750,000 Muslim and Christian Palestinians were made refugees as Zionist forces took control of historic Palestine. 530 villages and cities were destroyed and 15,000 Palestinians died in a series of mass atrocities and massacres. But that isn't where the story begins either. Jewish families and activists from a new movement called Zionism had been moving to the Promised Land since the 1800s. After the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in 1914, 
The French and British divvied up the Middle East between them, and the British took control of the land. In 1917, the British issued the Balfour Declaration, promising the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, though the land wasn't even, quote, theirs to give away. The British mandate began in 1920. But why even was the British government looking for a national home for the Jewish people before the horrors of World War II? For many non-Jews, the history of Jewish persecution begins and ends with Hitler and the Holocaust. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Jews had been subject to religious violence and persecution since ancient times. And the expulsion of the Jewish people from their homes and communities has been a through line of human history. I'm about to take you on a pretty drastic uh, history of, of, of Judaism. So stay with me here. Judaism dates back thousands and thousands of years. But in the interest of time, let's begin only maybe 2,700 years ago. In 733 BC, the king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire sacked the northern kingdom of Israel and captured or resettled three Jewish tribes to what is now modern Syria. In 722 BC, Sargon II did the exact same. The people that survived were able to flee went south to Jerusalem. In 597, and 10 years later in 587 BC, Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed, and its people captured, killed, deported, or fled. By now, the Jewish communities had been scattered around the Middle East, Northern Africa, and the Mediterranean. In 139 BC, 19 CE, 41 through 53 Common Era, and 73 CE, Jews were expelled from Rome. They were expelled from Alexandria in 38, killed in the Kedos War against Rome in 119, and expelled again from Alexandria in 415. In 418, they were expelled from Majorca. King Sesebud, ruler of Hispania from 612 to 621, his rule was marked by forced Christian conversion and anti-Jewish measures. Then in 629, the entire Jewish population of Galilee was massacred or expelled after the Jewish rebellion against Byzantium. Okay, let me skip ahead a bit. From 1095 to the mid-13th century, waves of the Crusades destroyed many Jewish communities in Europe and the Middle East. During the 12th through 14th centuries in France, King Philip Augustus, Louis IX, Philip IV, Charles IV, Charles V, and Charles VI used the confiscation of Jewish property and held readmission to Jewish homes for ransom in order to personally enrich the French crown. In 1231, Jews were expelled from Leicester. In 1253, from Vienne, France. In 1275, from Cambridge, Gloucester, Marlborough, and Worcester. In 1276, from Upper Bavaria. In 1287, from Gascony. In 1288, from Naples. In 1289, more expulsions from France. In 1290, King Edward I of England issued an edict of expulsions that was only reversed by Oliver Cromwell in 1655. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead again. In 1679 and 1680, Jews were expelled from their communities in Yemen and sent to the desert in what is known as the Maza exile. In 1683, Jews were exiled from the French colonial Caribbean territories. In 1714, from Bavaria again. In 1791, Catherine the Great of Russia instituted the Pell of Settlement, deporting and restricting Jews to the western part of Russia called the Pell. In 1862, Ulysses S. Grant expelled Jews from Tennessee, Mississippi, and Kentucky. 
All of this painful history laid at the feet of Theodor Herzl, an Austrian journalist who felt that in the face of such anti-Semitism, assimilation was impossible to realize. And if Jews were never allowed to assimilate, then they had essentially been forced by external pressure to form a nation and could only lead normal lives together in a Jewish state. In 1897, in Bern, Switzerland, Zionism was born, stating its goal to create for the Jewish people a home in Palestine secured by public law. The Zionist movement grew slowly before World War I. Many Jews found the concept degrading. Why not be accepted where they were? Why should they have to find another home, one of only Jews? But the movement, led by many Austrians and Germans and made up of communist and socialist Russian Jews, invested in shared Jewish culture. This period is known as the Jewish Renaissance. Zionists created their own newspapers and developed the modern Hebrew language with which they were able to spread their message. During this time in the 1880s through the 1910s, pogroms in the Russian Empire forced 2.5 million Jews to immigrate from Eastern Europe to places like the United States and Palestine. A pogrom is an organized massacre of Jews, particularly in Eastern Europe. It was so common during this time that this kind of ethnic cleansing was given its own name. Pogrom isn't the only word anti-Semitism introduced to our collective vocabulary. A thousand years of Jewish history in Europe added certain words to the human vocabulary. Forced conversion, inquisition, expulsion, ghetto, pogrom, holocaust. They happened because hate went unchecked. No one said stop. By 1914, there were about 90,000 Jews in agricultural settlements in Palestine. With the outbreak of World War I, political Zionism gained serious momentum as its leadership passed to Russian Jews living in England who were catalysts in obtaining the Balfour Declaration, which promised a Jewish state in Palestine. Then Hitler rose to power. From 1933 to 1936, between 30 and 60,000 more European Jews fled to British-controlled Palestine. When they arrived, they clashed with Palestinian Arabs, with this influx of outsiders, the local Arab population revolted, and the British authorities and the Zionist militias crushed that revolt that lasted until 1939. This was happening in Palestine while the Holocaust was happening in Europe. Some of the same people that were asking for peace and sought safety also inflicted harm. At its most basic, this is why we call the situation, quote, complicated. I hope the Holocaust is pretty well-known history it is an example of the most atrocious human behavior. I will not go into great detail here except to say that 6 million Jews died. The global Jewish population was cut by essentially one-third. Every Jew in Europe was under threat. They didn't deserve that. No one does. After the war in early 1947, the British government handed over Palestine and the quote, Jewish problem to the newly formed United Nations. And later that year, the UN began its partition plan to divide Palestine into Jewish and Arab states. Until that time, Jews made up 30% of the population and owned less than 6% of the land. The UN plan allocated 55% of the land, including many cities and the important coastline from Haifa to Jaffa. The Palestinians rejected the proposal and faced the brutal Nakba. 
At the time, Israel took control of 78% of the land, and today Israel controls more than 85% of historic Palestine. Settler occupation in the West Bank painstakingly continues to force Arabs out of their homes, family by family, every day. Since the establishment of Israel in 1948, the landscape of the Middle East has been shaped by a series of conflicts and power dynamics. Israel, a state that has seen governments ranging from the left to the hard right, has been at the center of many of these turbulent events. Throughout its history, a series of laws, policies, and practices have been implemented, some of which have been criticized for favoring Jewish citizens, contributing to a complex and often contentious relationship with the Palestinian people. This friction has not been without response. Across the decades, neighboring Arab nations have attempted military interventions, resulting in wars that have reshaped borders and left lasting impacts on regional politics. These conflicts, often marked by high casualties and significant political fallout, have been a recurring element in the history of this region. Within the borders of Israel and the Palestinian territories, the situation has been equally volatile. The state has witnessed a series of terrorist attacks, including devastating bus and car bombings. These acts of violence, often attributed to extremist groups, have instilled fear and led to cycles of retaliation, further deepening the divide. Amidst the violence, the skies over Israel and the Gaza Strip have too often been lit by the trails of rockets. These attacks, launched from Palestinian territories, have been met with swift military responses from Israel, leading to a seemingly endless cycle of aggression and reprisal. In the midst of this, the Palestinian Authority has sought to bring global attention to their plight. Through diplomatic efforts, they have highlighted their cause on the international stage, seeking support for Palestinian rights and aspirations for statehood. In the latest conflict between Israel and Hamas, we've witnessed a devastating level of violence and loss. Hamas, a recognized terrorist organization by many, launched an attack resulting in significant Israeli casualties, over 1,200 deaths and more than 230 hostages. The Israeli response, though a reaction to Hamas's aggression, has led to a tragic loss of around 26,000 Palestinian lives, raising questions about the proportionality and impact of such actions. Globally, there has been a surge in support for the Palestinian cause, with large-scale demonstrations and vocal advocacy on social media. However, this wave of support often overlooks the suffering caused by Hamas's tactics, which include indiscriminate attacks and a strategy that places their own people in the line of fire. This aspect is crucial in understanding the conflict's complexity and far-reaching impact, affecting not only Israelis and Palestinians, but also foreign nationals from over two dozen countries. Hamas's latest attack didn't involve just killing or kidnapping Israelis, but also nationals from countries like the Philippines, Nepal, China, Brazil, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Tanzania. And amidst all of this, social media has become a battleground of narratives, with content creators often driven more by emotion than informed research. When confronted with facts, many express regret for uninformed statements. Yes, the Palestinian cause needs champions. Their leaders aren't very effective. But know what you're talking about. Know what river and sea you're talking about. Know the makeup of the Palestinian government. It highlights a gap between good intentions and informed discourse, reminding me of the adage, wisdom has been chasing you, but you've always been faster. 
As we delve into the nuances of this enduring conflict, it's vital to critically examine the actions of all parties involved, especially Hamas. Their approach has not only perpetuated a cycle of violence and suffering, but also distanced their leadership from the immediate consequences of their actions. Hamas's political leaders are away in Qatar, Turkey, and Lebanon, and their military leaders are in underground tunnels beneath Gaza, conveniently far removed from the suffering on the surface. In this episode, we provide a balanced yet critical perspective, grounded in fact and sensitive to the complexities of the situation, exploring the roots and ramifications of the Israel-Hamas conflict. I'm joined today by Isaac Saul, journalist and founder of Tangle, an independent nonpartisan politics newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from the left and right on the news of the day. Isaac has spent the last four months analyzing the news out of Israel and Palestine and the American media's reaction to it. He is an expert in the narratives that the left and the right failed to support their ideas, but he has also been thinking about his own connection to the conflict as someone who is Jewish and has lived in Israel. We found his writing on the war to be thoughtful, compassionate, smart, and balanced, and that's why we want to bring him on today. Okay. There we go. Isaac. <laughs> For the listeners who don't know, uh, I just started this interview, but I forgot to hit record. So now this is kind of a take two, which is really, really fun. <laughs> Isaac, once again, thanks for being on the Delve. First question, right towards you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Tangle? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, so I'm a, I'm a politics reporter by trade. I mean, my, my passion and love is writing, but I've been a politics reporter since I graduated college. And I was in the media space for about seven or eight years, working for a couple of different publications and freelancing all over and basically covering U.S. national politics as a beat. Mm. So that's kind of my quote unquote expertise. And about four or five years ago now, I was struggling to get my next job. I was working at a place called A Plus and I was applying all over looking for work and got to a few final interviews, got rejected for some jobs, was feeling really crappy about myself, got really frustrated and decided I was going to go out and start my own thing. Mm -hmm. I had a concept for a newsletter which was basically to cover one big, really divisive topic every day and to cover it by explicitly sharing a wide range of views on that topic all in one place. So summarizing views from the right and the left and sort of explaining the issue and then sharing my own personal view on the topic. And yeah. it was just kind of a concept. And I sent it out to a few friends and family members and some colleagues and people really liked it. And it ended up being the first of now over a thousand newsletters that I've sent over the past five years. And the concept has basically not changed at all. It's pretty much exactly what it was when oh, we wow. first sent it, which is really cool. I mean, we've added some stuff, but yeah, that's the Tangle newsletter, which is now my full-time job. We have a team of about five people and close to 100,000 subscribers on our mailing list. Oh, and a, awesome. Yeah, podcast, YouTube channel, all sorts of stuff. And we we wade into the really big controversial stuff every day with open minds and open hearts and try and get people to read and engage views that they might not agree with is really fundamentally what we're trying to do. Yeah, well... I'm a Tangle consumer here, and I think some of the stuff that you guys do, it makes me kind of like look at issues different. And one of, the, I guess, the biggest issues for the world since um, last fall has been this issue with Israel and Palestine. And I have 
struggled with how to respond, how to react, how to talk about it. Being Jewish, being an American, so I'm partly related, but still kind of removed because I'm not in the region. And I haven't known, like, what's the proper response. So I've been kind of silent publicly, but maybe with friends and people, you know, I care about uh, trying my best to give a little bit of context, you know, here and there. With this, this war, what has really stood out to you about it? Hmm. I mean, a lot of things stand out. I think, first of all, the force and the degree of violence that we're seeing both in the initial attacks by Hamas and in the response by Israel, I think is pretty much unprecedented in terms of what we've witnessed in this conflict before. I lived in Israel for a period of time mm -hmm. about 10 years ago and have cared deeply about this issue for a long time and have been thinking about it deeply for a long time. And I've never seen it or felt it like this. I think it's you know, the folks who are older than me and who have been around longer than I have compare it to, you know, the decoration of Israel in the 40s in 1948 and some of the big wars we've seen, like in 1967. Mm. And aside from that, there really is no comparison. So I think that stands out. I think the social media element is really big. The fact that people on the ground in Gaza who are experiencing the horrors of what it's like to be bombed from above or witnessing a ground invasion in your own country. Yeah. Similar to what we saw with Ukrainians, they're able to telegraph what they're experiencing to the whole world, which changes things dramatically. It brings everybody in in a way that's really visceral. And I think relatedly has opened the door to a lot of misinformation and a lot of incomplete information and a lot of unverified information that's spread from both sides. And then I think just the level of engagement from the public, which I'm sure is a product of that. But, you know, I've seen a lot of people who I've never known to really care about this issue or think about it or whatever, posting all sorts of stuff from both sides. I have a very politically diverse group of friends. You know, I'm an American Jew and a lot of my friends are, you know, Jews who live here who are Zionists and Jews who live here who are anti-Zionist and super liberal. Oh. I have a lot of Arab, Muslim, Palestinian friends also from my time in the Middle East. So I, I see their social media feeds and the people that they're associated with and the way that they're experiencing this. And so there's a lot of engagement, which I think is really, really hard to process all at once. And those are the big three. It's just the level of engagement, the social media element of getting to witness stuff in real time, and then just the sheer magnitude of the horror of, of what's happening right now on, on both sides. Yeah. I think probably one of the things I'm grateful for is I also got to spend a nice chunk of time in Israel and in the greater region. I spent a lot of time in Egypt and, and just kind of going around. And I think like those connections have really made my understanding of, I guess, the conflict a little bit more richer because I'm getting like these point of views, but these point of views from folks on the ground, which is really, really nice compared to some of these content creators, you know, in the West, just don't have that connection, haven't done that research or any of that type of work. But I wrote a quote here that you said they're having these authoritative, definitive black and white stances about the conflict. How do you feel about the way people are talking about this? So it's really tricky. I mean, I think on the one hand, you have to 
respect the fact that people feel compelled to talk and engage and speak out about injustices that Mm -hmm. they see or perceived injustices or whatever it is. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I, as someone who most of the year spends my time trying to get people to give a shit and care about what's (laughs) happening in our country, it's awesome to see people care and be engaged. And so that's great. The other side of it is I do think there are a lot of people who are new-ish or just straight up new to this issue who view it through a very American lens, who simplify it and flatten it and try and make it black and white. You know, whether it's folks on the left who I think typically see good and evil through the lens of power and strength. So, you know, Israel is a really capable military. They have the backing of the United States. They have an advanced economy. They are at an advantage in any conflict with the Palestinian people, just fundamentally. And so a lot of people on the left, I think when they see a power imbalance like that, they also see a moral imbalance and they view the powerful entity as being fundamentally immoral and less good and more evil. And that I think is a not something that you can just stamp onto this conflict blindly. And then For a lot of people on the right, I think they are sort of stuck in a post 9-11 world where they view Israel as being unimpeachably good because it is one of the few democracies in the Middle East. They view Israel as being unimpeachably good because they're a staunch ally of the United States. They see Arab Muslims in the Palestinian territories who are, you know, fighting for their own freedom and liberation and their own territory. And rather than seeing fighters, they see terrorists, they see extremists, and they view this in really black and white terms, you know, in the sense that there's a good versus evil fight happening here. There's a fight for the West. There's a fight for democracy. And I think both sides are wrong to view it in those terms. I think there's a reason this is one of the most immovable and tractable conflicts in the history of the world. And it's because it's really complicated and something I like to point out fundamentally because it's basically a group of first cousins who are fighting with each other. I mean, like literally the descendants of cousins and also so, so, so similar in their religious and cultural backgrounds in everything from their language to their culinary. I mean, really, truly, if you spent any time in the Middle East or in East Jerusalem or in the Palestinian territories or in Israel, it is striking you know, it's almost hard to tell Israelis and Palestinians apart in a lot of ways. And so, you know, this is not simple. And anybody who tries to talk about it in simple terms, I think, is lying to themselves and to you. And so for me, that's that's really hard is when I see it sort of reduced in that way. Yeah, because it's not so simple. You know, it's, it, there's so many elements and factors to it. But I, I think that kind of what you're saying for the left, because I think that's probably been the more surprising group for me. Their just like intensity and their anger, it's been mind blowing. But I think when you mentioned about this kind of like power imbalance, which for them translate to a morality imbalance, um, I've never thought about it that way before. Um, And so I think that is something that's really kind of guiding them in their response. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's 
I don't think it's wrong to see images of a school in Gaza being leveled by a sophisticated yeah. military operation or a bombing and be like, this is horrific. Like, how can we stand by and accept this? I feel that way. And I'm someone who fundamentally believes in the project of Israel and supports the concept of Israel and wants to see a thriving and free, you know, Jewish state. But it gets complicated when yeah. you get into, you wade into, you know, what is an appropriate response? What's a reasonable response? Where should the line be drawn? You know, I'm somebody right now who's supportive of a ceasefire, who's supportive of any negotiated deal to bring home the remaining Israeli hostages and stop the bombardment mm. of Gaza. I think, you know, whatever show of force was intended to be shown, the message has been sent. I also think this Israeli military operation has been a colossal failure. I think Netanyahu is a failed leader. I think, you know, everything that this was supposed to do, this strong show of force in response to Hamas's attack to make Israel safer, to make Jews safer, to bring stability, mm. to act as a deterrence, it's all just done the opposite. And all at the same time, tens of thousands of Palestinians have died. So, you know, it's horrific. It's totally horrific. But Isaac, we have a lot of alignment here. That's, that's yeah. nice. <laughs> but it's it's not possible to speak about in a vacuum. And I don't think it makes Zionists fundamentally bad people. I don't think it makes Israel fundamentally a bad or a moral project, just because I believe that this current iteration of the Israeli government is a failed group of leaders. And, you know, it's worth talking about the, the nuances there because we have to find a solution. I mean, there has to be a path forward. There's some, something is going to happen after this war right. and it's not going to be the elimination of Palestinians and the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And it's not going to be the end of the Israeli state. Yep. Something different is going to happen and we have to figure out what it is. And right. so that's why to me, it's really important to talk about it in, in some kind of nuanced way. Yeah. Two things. You mentioned earlier a lot of times like we're seeing images of, like you said, you mentioned a school earlier being, you know, flattened by some Israeli bombs. And I see like when like the press reported, there was this NPR post I saw the other day and it was like, Israel flattens Gaza University and the university had an undergrad program and a graduate program and, you know, these are how many students were there and never like said why Israel you know, decide to do this attack or why the IDF, you know, moved in for this attack. It was, it's, I thought it was just like, well, that sounds inflammatory. Like that's, that's intense, but there's never like, because dot, dot, dot was happening there. Yeah. Have you noticed that there's like that happening? For sure. I mean, I think the, we've seen a few different kinds of biases in the media sort of rear their heads during this conflict. I think one of the biases, the one that you're sort of alluding to right now, comes from sort of a, a lot of the left of center press, which is that anytime there's some kind of Israeli strike or, you know, the bombing of some sort of civilian infrastructure, the headlines are going to be as bombastic and horrific as possible, <laughs> which is typically to get people to click on it and read the story because that really works. Yeah. And the details behind those bombings or strikes or whatever they are, are typically going to come in like the 20th paragraph yeah. and probably add some kind of like important context. Like, oh, the, there was a group of militants who were using using the university as a base and we're firing rockets out of it. And that's common, you know, mm. but there's also the other side of it too, which is like, 
a lot of the framing and the language that we've seen from even left of center news outlets like the New York Times yeah. often talks about, you know, the Palestinian dead in a sort of passive voice as if it's unclear how they were killed or, or who killed them when it was an Israeli strike that is the reason they're dead. We see fundamentally in the Western media, especially that the primary sources for a lot of the fastest information that comes out is the U.S. and Israeli military who are obviously going to tell a version of every event that is beneficial for them. And because so many people in the Arab world are isolated in the Middle East or so many people in the Palestinian territories are isolated and having trouble contacting the outside world right now. And so many reporters don't speak Arabic or Hebrew and are only English speakers. Just the Western media bias itself tends to favor, I think, the sort of US-Israeli talking points. And everybody needs to be like very, very cognizant of all of that stuff because it changes the way stories are reported fundamentally and you see it in all sorts of different ways mm. from your example all the way to the other side where you know we get some sort of consistent story from the western voices who are covering a piece and then a few weeks later we find out that like the arabic speaking reporters on the ground actually had the story right the whole time and it's very different from what we initially thought yeah and i think it's probably like a little bit more interesting because we kind of have this culture in in western media of fact checking you know that is a thing that's it's a pretty ingrained into our type of media i was reading this new york times article today that it is kind of a newer um development in in middle eastern media outlets to have like fact checking and so i think that's why i'm surprised more with our media that there isn't a better job at this, that they're not, you know, kind of like uh, reviewing these stories or these facts or actually like explaining both sides better. But like you said, maybe it's just to, you know, get those clicks in and get that traffic. I think they're competing with a lot of the people we're talking about, the kind of social media influencers, people on Twitter, mm. anybody on the ground who has a Twitter account, you know, can report something now, which makes them want to report faster. And when you're reporting fast, you make mistakes. Yeah. You take the first version of events you hear. You go to the sources you know you can get a hold of. All these things sort of create like a snowball effect. So yeah. it's really tricky. I don't envy, you know, I've been a breaking news reporter. It's so hard. It's one of the hardest jobs there is, especially to get it right on the first try. Mm. So I don't, I don't envy their position at all. I think like some of the rules that we have about, covering mass shootings and things like that, really big tragedies in the US are actually really similar to the rules people should have when reading about stuff in wartime, which is the first version of events is almost never true. It's typically incomplete. Right. Waiting patiently for verified information is is really, really important. And you shouldn't share something unless you're like 100% sure that it's accurate. <laughs> what a world that would be. Yeah, Can you imagine? It's hard to ask that of like your typical civilians, but of the very least, at the very least, we need journalists to do that. And, and yeah. right now, I don't even think they're doing that as often as they should be. Yeah. Do you think there's a way to come back from this divide? Is there a way to bridge this? Or is this like stuck in the psyche of just people around the globe that are they in this pro-Israel camp, this pro-Palestinian camp, and there's no way to move forward? I think there's a way to bridge the divide. I mean, maybe bridge the divide is a little too optimistic. I think there's a way to solve the conflict. And I think there's a way to heal the wounds of what's happened over the past hundred years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the 
the past few centuries, if you zoom out to a broader kind of like Israel, Judeo-Christian war. The monologue I have introducing this interview, I go back uh, millennia, so. <laughs> yeah, so like, here's what I'll say is it wasn't so long ago that the United States was dropping an atomic bomb on Japan, Yeah. right? Yeah, true. And they're one of our biggest allies yes. in the world now, and there are people living in Japan today who experience that firsthand. And yeah. I, as an American tourist, can go on kayak.com right now and buy a plane ticket to Japan and go there and be welcome with open arms. Very true. And that took a generation. So I don't think that it's impossible. I think it'd be ridiculous to feel that it was. Yeah. Will it take really innovative thinkers? Yeah. Will it take really, really good leadership on the Israeli and the Palestinian side? Yes. Will it take generations to heal everything that we're witnessing right now? Every Israeli who knew somebody who was killed in the Hamas attack has been radicalized in some specific way. I'm sure of it. Every Palestinian who's living through what's happening in Gaza right now, they're being radicalized. Mm -hmm. and, and those people are going to need yeah. time and years and strong leadership to not choose more violence, to not choose more conflict. So... It's not going to be easy, but I absolutely think it's possible. I think all throughout world history, we've seen it happen. I mean, the French and the Germans did it. You know, I mean, like it has to happen. It must happen. It will happen. It's going to take a while and it's going to take some really strong leadership. It will take a lot of healing. And I don't think we're in a good place for it to start right now. I mean, mm. we have to change the dynamics of it, change the attitude around, you know, you see polling right now amongst Israelis and Palestinians, and they don't think it can happen, which is more important than whatever I think. So that has to change first in order for us to really have any hope. Yeah, I really like your optimism. Uh, that's, that's really nice. It's honest. It's honest. It's, it's really, truly how I feel. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit away from the Israel-Palestinian section. What's the toughest part of being or reporting nonpartisan? How do you navigate that? You know, because sometimes there are some things that are just objectively bonkers. So how, how do you go about that? Yeah, so I'm really lucky, at least in the sense that the format is our special sauce and tangle, mm. and our format allows me to speak my mind honestly and freely. So, you know, we talk about being nonpartisan or balanced. I don't think there's really a great word to actually describe what we're doing. We're not really quite either of those things. The reality is, I feel like I'm a good person to do the work I'm doing because my politics are kind of all over the place and because I don't have any real party loyalty mm. and because I see the pros and cons of, you know, red and blue and Republican and Democrat really, yep. really clearly right now, especially, you know, I give myself space to share my opinion every day. So the hardest part would be if I had to suppress my own views. And in the case of Tangle, I get to talk about what I actually mm. feel. I think what's really challenging for me is that I send our email to a lot of people now. And so I get tons of criticism from people for the things that I write, which is part of the job, obviously. But the hardest part is when people write in and like accuse you of saying something that you didn't actually say, or they like 
project onto you something they read somewhere <laughs> else and you use some kind of similar language uh -huh. and then they decide you agree or said the same thing. And so, the, you know, I spend such a big portion of my day writing people back and saying, actually, here was what I actually said. I don't know why you're accusing me of saying this or actually I had made that argument before. <laughs> Go read this piece that I wrote two weeks ago. And it's yeah. like, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself we cover the same stuff multiple times a year because issues pop back up like the Israeli-Palestinian stuff. You know, we're not going to do one article on that and then never cover it again. So we've covered it five or six sure. times in the last couple months. But every time I write something new, I don't want to write the same thing I wrote last time. So I'll talk about different stuff. And then somebody will write in and be like, why didn't you say this? And I'm like, well, I said it in the last piece we wrote. You could just go back. So it's like that kind of stuff can get really frustrating. <laughs> you know, I'm fortunate in that I do give myself some space to kind of blow off a little bit of steam and, and share my own views. And it's really hard because people have their own biases. And so someone who's really conservative will read my stuff and they think that I'm like a closet liberal. Somebody who's really liberal will read my stuff and they think I'm like a closet Trumper. And I'm like, it's not my biases that we're talking about. It's actually your worldview that's like mm. off the spectrum a little bit. And so it's hard to convince people of that. And it's hard to constantly get accused by both sides of being some kind of hack without yeah. them being able to see what each other are saying, which is hard. Yep. It's pretty funny. What are the top three stories to look out for this year? Oh, man. Um, mm. It's a fun one. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fun one. That's good. I uh, I mean, number one, I would say is China and Taiwan. That's probably one of the things I'm watching most closely. Okay. If you thought Ukraine yeah. being invaded by Russia was scary or Israel invading Gaza was scary, um, if China decides that they want this quote-unquote reunification, they're going to do it through force, mm. it will be by far the most destabilizing event of the last decade. So I'm very hopeful that doesn't happen. President Xi in China is sending some signals that he's interested. Mm -hmm. There are also a lot of signals that they're not going to do anything <laughs> like that. But it's a story I'm watching very closely for sure. That That's the first thing that comes to mind. President Biden's age, I guess, would probably be up there. Yeah. You know, he's old. He doesn't look great. He's facing a historically weak candidate in Donald Trump, sure. probably, in this presidential matchup. But I think, you know, if he has any kind of major health episode in the next year, that's going to be not bueno for the country and will be a really destabilizing thing and, and really scary. And um, what's a good third one? Not really a news story, I guess, that I'm looking out for, but the border situation, I think, has hit a total boiling point. I think a lot of people on the left, mm. especially those living in cities like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles, are now seeing the impacts of it up close and in person because of some of these stunts from Southern Republican governors sending migrants to these cities. But yeah, yeah I have property on the border. I spent my summers living down there on the border of Texas and Mexico. I have a lot of family from the border. So it's one of the areas of the country or, or of politics that I'm very, I guess, uh, well read on and have experienced a lot of stuff in person. And I would say right now is maybe the worst it's ever been mm. in terms of the dysfunction, the number of migrants that we're trying to process the kind of bipartisan division around it. And it's all sort of hitting a fever pitch. And I think it's going to be a really big story in the next year, especially because 
Republicans in some ways don't want to fix it because if they do, it's a win for Biden in election season, which is the horrible, cynical part of our politics. And Democrats are unwilling to fix it in some ways because they're scared of the progressive base if they implement stricter border policies. And that's a really bad combo. So there's a chance it doesn't get fixed, which means it's going to get worse, which is really scary, I think. So I'm keeping my eyes on what's going on down there for sure. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, you guys have started a podcast. I want to hear more about this. Tell me, how is that going? <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've had the podcast for a little while, but it's not really a podcast. It's okay. mostly, I mean, it is now, but for a long time, it was just me reading the newsletter every day. Uh, Whereas now we have like, we're bringing people in for interviews. Yeah. We've introduced a co-host who I kind of chop it up with sometimes. Yeah. We have like music interludes and ads and it's a lot more sophisticated now. That is pretty recent than it, than it was in the past. I love the podcast. I, I mean- It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. It's really fun. Writing is definitely my, my passion, but I really enjoy kind of just getting to talk about our work, reflect on things, have somebody to talk to and converse with, interviewing people, super fun, like yeah. just going out and finding people who are interesting to talk to <laughs> and bring them on. It's a blast. So yeah, we, we've we been really enjoying it. We have coming up in 2024, our first ever series that we're working on right now, which is um, okay. we're following around undecided voters in the 2024 election. And we're going to follow them up through uh. election day to see who they vote for. So that's going to be a yeah. very interesting series, I hope, and encourage people certainly to go find us and check us out and subscribe. But the newsletter is still, still the baby, still the main product. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Love that. We had a production meeting earlier today and we're kind of like talking about doing something, not a series, but like an episode where we get like some undecided voters and have them kind of like hack it out. But I don't know. It sounds kind of scary, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's fascinating, but scary too. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perfect. I like to end these things asking people what's something that makes them hopeful and optimistic. Um, we had a lot of optimism from you earlier. <laughs> so if you have a little bit more left, uh, what's something that makes you hopeful and optimistic? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, I, I think my hopefulness and optimism comes from the fact that I think today is fundamentally the best time there's basically ever been to be alive. Mm. And if you ask me, you know, you can get dropped in any moment in history in the last like 4,000 years. Where would you go? I would almost certainly choose right now. Really? Yeah, definitely. Maybe like oh. 2019, right before the pandemic, because COVID messed everything up. <laughs> but like, I'm choosing a time in the last 10 years, absolutely, without hesitation. Wow. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, the 90s were, you know, purportedly a really great economic time, but they were also awful to live in any major city. Crime was horrendous. Yeah. You know, you had like the AIDS epidemic still going on, the sure. crack cocaine yeah. epidemic happening, all these things that were really destabilizing. And 9-11 was around the corner. Yeah. You go back any further in history, it's like, I mean, I'm a Jew. It sounds like you're a Jew. You, <laughs> yeah. My mom's turning 70 this year she wasn't allowed to go to her high school dances yeah. no jews or blacks allowed dude yep. um no thanks not about that <laughs> life and then you go back like you know 19th century it's like all right now you don't have penicillin so that sucks i'm, I'm good on that so i i don't know i would think of going like way further back like i don't know i think it'd be really interesting to see like egypt functioning mm. 
Yeah, that's true. For curiosity perspective, I'll give you that. Like, I'd like to find out more about Jesus. Like, was he real or? Sure, yeah. that's that's hilarious. But yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah, what was what was he actually like? But again, like, go. You're like, okay, cool. Let's go see what was up in Egypt or yeah. in Jesus's time. Yeah. And then it's like, I accidentally am like wearing my Star of David necklace when I roll up there, and they're like, oh, idolatry, head off. I'm like, sweet, that was a nice voyage into like yeah. five BC, you know. So. <laughs> Um, I still think I'm picking recent years. That's incredible. I, I don't, that's, I, that's my optimistic hope is, uh, yeah, I'm glad to be alive right now. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Love that. Isaac, once again, thanks so much for coming on the Delve. This was, this was really, really fun. I had a really, really great time. Come back sometime. I appreciate you having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. I know this was a tough episode. It was for all of us. To learn more about Tangle, check out our show notes. And as always, if you've enjoyed the show, give us a follow and leave a five-star review wherever you found us. We really appreciate it. Shout out to all of the folks who worked on this episode. Madison hitting production and Eli, Javon, and Aaron holding down sound. You guys are the real MVPs. I'm Jalen. This is The Delve. I'll see you next Friday.